Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone, welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and in this episode, we're looking at Operation Argument. It's one that we all know as Big week. It's gone down in history as the beginning of the end of the German Luftwaffe. I've dug this one out of the Dan Snow's History Hit archive because it's with the fascinating James Holland. He is, of course, the award-winning historian and author, and he takes us through step-by-step the stages of this mission. He talks about the sheer size of the operation with over 6,000 Allied sorties and the impact that this mission had on winning the war. So here he is. James Holland on Big Week. James Holland, you're back on the podcast. You've written another book. What's wrong with you, man? These things just seem to come out. You're like Harry Potter. They seem to get magic out of thin air. Yeah, this one's... Um, well, actually, I did sign up to do this quite a few years ago, so it's sort of been a little while in coming. But, yeah, I did write most of it in a sort of fast period of fury early part of this year. Uh, and it was fascinating because, actually, although I do really like the kind of aviation side of the Second World War and, and find that endlessly fascinating, I have to say this was a bit about which I had only the vaguest notions before I started it. So all the research was really fascinating for me and really just amazing about D-Day because this is this is the period of the air war in the autumn of 1943 where you sort of think the Allies are sort of getting their stuff together. You know, Bomber Command's getting better, the Americans are coming over, the growth of the Mighty Eighth, the introduction of the Mustang and all the rest of it. But actually, there's this huge crisis going on in the autumn of 1943 among the Allied Command about air power, what it needs to do, how you're going to achieve it. And basically, in a nutshell, what they're trying to do is gain air superiority over northwest Europe. So it's not just the invasion beaches, which is an absolutely essential precursor before you have any invasion. It is also about that wider area, because, of course, it's not just those beaches that you need protecting. You also need to do all the kind of pre-invasion stuff. You need to be able to, you know, and also the other thing is, of course, is your strategic bombing isn't going to be as successful while there's still lots of German fighters um, around the place, whether they be night fighters or day fighters. So your strategic bombing is going to become more efficient when you've cleared the skies, as well as that, as enabling you to do all the kind of precursor stuff you need to do before D-Day, such as blowing up bridges and marshalling guards and all the rest of it, and hitting oil plants. So 
It's absolutely essential. And they just can't do it because in the second half of 1943, despite the fact that the Luftwaffe is on its knees, most of the Luftwaffe's resources have been brought back into the Third Reich, into the, you know, into the Reich. And they've also created a proper, fully coordinated air defence system by that stage. You know, basically on the same model as, as we had in Britain in 1940, but better because it's more sophisticated, you know, four years, three years on. And this is a really big problem because bombers are suddenly starting to be shot down in droves unless they're protected by fighters. And the Americans are sticking to their guns on this whole kind of sort of the importance of daylight bombing because it's more precise, which it definitely is. But by the end of 1943, RF Bomber Command is also getting quite precise. But at the same time, whenever they're going out at night, which is supposed to be safer, it no longer is so safe because there's lots and lots of night fighters out there who are being directed by the air defence system. And they're getting absolutely clobbered too. So suddenly there's this big problem on their hands just at the moment when, on the face of it, they ought to be getting stronger. I've always very naively thought that this was it was a problem that they just dealt with kind of attritionally by just going on these raids, shooting, escorting fighters, shooting down German interceptors. But this book is all about the very specific kind of air offensive to win air superiority. Just just explain to us about that. Yeah. Okay. So that's exactly what it's about. And really, it's not about bombers. It's about fighters, which massively ticks my box, I've got to say, because, you know, I'm much more interested in in sort of Mustangs and Thunderbolts and Spitfires than I am a Messerschmitt 109s than I am about bombers. But it's, it's, okay, so this is why the Mustang, the P-51 Mustang, the famous P-51 Mustang is so important, because what the, what the Americans click quicker than the British, than, than Arthur Harris, Commander-in-Chief of Bomber Command, understands, is that there is this symbiotic relationship between the importance of getting air, winning air superiority and your efficiency as strategic bombers. The two go hand in hand. And the only way you can do that is if you destroy the Luftwaffe. And the only way you can destroy the Luftwaffe is by destroying them by day rather than by night, because that's when your fighter's going to come up and you can gauge fighter against fighter. So you can bomb the aircraft factories, and that reduces the efficiency of of the Luftwaffe. But really what you need to do is to destroy other fighters, because other fighters are obviously piloted by pilots and their men, and that is where the shortfall really is starting to bite with the Germans because they don't have enough fuel and they don't have enough training time and the quality of German pilots is just getting less and less and less. But how do you do that when they're all falling back into the Reich, which is beyond fighter range? So by the beginning of 1944, for example, you know, British and American fighter pilots are way superior to the Germans in terms of skill, experience and all the rest of it. So your average British fighter pilot or American fighter pilot is arriving at his frontline squadron with about 350 hours in their logbook. You think it was about 150, 170 during the Battle of Britain for both sides. Whereas a German, he's lucky if he's got 100. So it's a massive disparity. They've also got greater skill because there's more of them. So an American squadron, this is just unbelievable, is you would never have more than 16 planes from a fighter squadron, American fighter squadron, in the air at any one time. But they've maybe got kind of 45 to 60 pilots and planes per squadron. So they've got this amazing overlap, which, of course, means you've got more time to train. And when you arrive, you're 350, you know, you're Greenhorn, you arrive from America, you've got 350 hours in your logbook, which is pretty good. So you know where you are, you know your way around a Thunderbolt or a P-51 or whatever it is. You can then, you've then got time and plenty of high-octane fuel to go up and practice. And there's some really experienced guys, and they can show you the ropes and tell you some kind of sort of key things. And you're just getting, getting better and better and better. But the only thing they haven't got 
is the long-range fighter, and that's where the P-51 comes in. And the interesting thing about the P-51, and it is a really amazing story, because we all know it was sort of designed and first designed and first flew in 117 days, you know, which is just ridiculous. But actually, it wasn't that that great to start off with. It was only in the summer of 1942 when a, um, a test pilot, uh, Rolls-Royce, actually put a Merlin engine in it. That he suddenly thought, wow, this thing is absolutely amazing. This thing rocks at kind of high levels. And also, it's really, really fuel efficient. So suddenly, here was this plane that could kind of go all the way to Berlin and back. And that was a total game changer. Now, the really interesting thing is that actually the British could have done that because the Spitfire is quite fuel efficient. And you could have added, you know, auxiliary fuel tanks and taken a bit out and put another fuel tank and the fuselage and all the rest of it, which is exactly what they did with the, the Mustang. And it could have got there, but there was just no will to do it because the British, and uh, led by, you know, fighter command, commanded by, by Lee Mallory, was quite happy to just do close escorts and, uh, you know, across the, the channel to the continent. And also had no intention of escorting um, bombers at night because they're at night and it's dark and they're just doing their own thing. So there was no kind of will to do it. It was only the Americans who were insisting on sticking to daylight precision bombing, who suddenly thought, well, okay, but if we're going to go to Augsburg or we're going to go to Schweinfurt or wherever it might be, we have to have fighter protection all the way. So there is this massive imperative. And the only twig that the Mustang is right under their noses in the summer of 1943. And so then there is this huge race on to get a large number of Mustangs in time to enable them to win this kind of air superiority they need um, over Northwest Europe by the spring of 1944 in time for the invasion in which at that time is may 1944 so there's this huge race going on and that is the backdrop to to the big week story and the big week big week itself takes place in the third week of february 1944 and it is this big all-out concentrated effort right okay we've got it we've got some mustangs now we've got some long-range stuff the weather's good enough because it was absolutely wretched throughout most of the autumn and early part of the winter of you know 1943 1944 Let's really, really hammer the Luftwaffe and give them a really, really big bloody nose. And that is what happens in Big Week. And, and it is, you know, in terms of aircraft involved, there is no bigger air battle ever in the history of the world. And how do they, how do they choose the target so that they know the Luftwaffe will come up in numbers and present themselves for destruction? Well, all the targets are involved with the Luftwaffe air industry. So they know that if they're attacking, you know, aircraft plants and all the rest of it and manufacturing plants the Germans are just going to come up and defend them. And they do. And they've con- the Luftwaffe is concentrated. They're, they're, the Luftwaffe is still building vast numbers of aircraft, but what they're really short of is pilots. And, of course, they're just, you know, the attrition is just getting worse and worse and worse. And although Big Week itself doesn't, in terms of destruction on the Luftwaffe, doesn't, it isn't the kind of sort of final nail in the coffin by any stretch of the imagination. Where it really strikes home is in the in the loss of German pilots, and that is just unrecoverable. You you simply cannot buy that level of experience that they're losing. So talk me through some of these raids that are taking place on targets that are important to the German aircraft industry and Luftwaffe. These are daylight raids, are they? So they're nighttime and daylight raids. So they do get the buy-in of the British. So the British are doing it. And it kicks off actually on the 19th of February of a bomber command attack on Leipzig, where there are a lot, you know, all these towns like Leipzig, like Regensburg, like Schweinfurt, you know, they're big concentrations of aircraft factories in the area. And that is what they're, they're trying to hammer or ball-bearing plants in the case of Schweinfurt. And ball-bearings are obviously needed in the process of creating aircraft. These are where most of these attacks are taking place. And it's just relentless. It's actually day after day you're sending over, you know, a combination of, you know, 1,500 bombers. That's a heck of a lot. 
you know, you think that, you know, on on Battle of Britain Day, for example, the largest raid on Battle of Britain Day, 15th September 1940, there was 100 bombers. You know, you're talking the Americans sending over kind of 879 bombers alone and then another kind of 700 from Bomber Command. I mean, it's just, you know, and on top of that, you've got double that number of fighter planes. It's just in a different league. How do they organise themselves? Are the fighters, they, are they escorting these bombers at the same altitude? Are they above? Are they below? What's going on? Yeah, well, this is this is another change that happens at the beginning of 1944. What they had before was quite close escorts. And as the Germans discovered in the Battle of Britain in, back in 1940, close escort doesn't really work because what you have to do is you have to sort of weave over them to keep, keep speed with the bombers who are obviously flying much slower than you, which is inefficient and uses up lots of fuel. And you're then not quite in the best position to do that defensive fighting work that you need to do. So what they actually change is they say, actually, we're, we're going to have, we'll have some units are, are doing close escort work, but other parts are going to go up and they're going to be on a kind of sort of free hunt basis. And what I want you to do is not only do I want you to get high uh, and dive down on any enemy planes you see, I also, on the way back, I want you to just shoot up anything you can. So get down on the deck and shoot up airfields and shoot up, just, just shoot up anything. And it's incredibly effective. And that is a change that comes in with the arrival of Jimmy Doolittle as Commander-in-Chief of 8th Air Force at the beginning of 1944. So big week in the third week of February 1944 is also being conducted with these new fighter tactics, which are definitely the right way forward. And what effect does the... Bo- I mean, was the bombing just a, a vehicle to get the Germans up in the air where they can be killed? Or did the bombing of these targets on the ground actually achieve any purpose? So the bombing is the main event. OK, so, well... Not exactly. So the, it's, it's twofold. So they're trying to destroy the, the mechanism of the aircraft industry in Germany by bombing. But they also want to kind of massively attrit the Luftwaffe in terms of shooting down fighter planes. The bombing bit is less successful for big week than the actual air-to-air fighting. But fighters attacking bombers are far more effective as a defensive measure for the Luftwaffe than anti-aircraft guns. So there are 15,000 anti-aircraft guns in Germany alone by the beginning of 1944, which is just a staggering number, particularly when you sort of think about the Normandy coastline. You think there was only kind of 130 guns, the whole invasion front, higher calibre than 100 millimetres, and there's 15,000 in Germany. So the Luftwaffe, it takes something like 21 fighter planes to shoot down one bomber, but it takes out something like 200,000 shells to shoot down one bomber. So clearly the best way to destroy a bomber force is with fighter aircraft, without a shadow of doubt. That is your most efficient way to do it. But that is, again, where the Mustang and even long-range Thunderbolts, Thunderbolts are given, the P-47s, it's a very robust fighter plane, but they're also given auxiliary tanks as well, so they can go a little bit further. But it is where the mass of daylight fighters... Uh, particularly the Mustangs with their long-range effort when they're going deep into Germany. That is what makes the big difference. That is the game-changer. I mean, I, I think you can you can argue and argue convincingly that the P-51 Mustang is the most decisive aircraft ever built, most decisively important aircraft ever built, because it completely changes everything. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. 
This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of these sort of great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There are Spitfire lovers' hearts breaking around the country. No, this, so you know, I, I, I love the Spitfire. There's lots of amazing planes. I mean, you know, there's amazing jet planes which have done incredible things. But in terms of its impact in the situation in which it arrives when it comes into, it comes into combat, I can't think of one that has a greater, greater difference, makes a greater difference than the P-51. I mean, these sort of arguments and things are kind of spurious, I know. But, but it's an interesting point. I mean, it, it is such a game changer. And I know people kind of talk wax lyrical about the P-51, but it is with, with very good reason. I mean, it is an incredible aircraft. It packs a massive punch with its, with its 50 caliber machine guns. It's highly maneuverable. And it's got this incredible fuel efficiency. And it's got this incredible range. And, you know, it's small. And it's got incredibly high wing loading. And, you know, it's just awesome. Wow. What was the workhorse the German uh, Luftwaffe at this point that was taking them on? Yeah, well, it's still, you're still talking about Messerschmitt 109s and you're talking about Focke-Wulf 190s. I mean, you know, these are very, very good planes. But, you know, all this time that's been going on, you know, the Americans and the British are constantly developing new aircraft or really seriously upgrading aircraft like the Spitfire. Whereas the Germans aren't massively upgrading the 109 and they're not massively upgrading 
the, the Fokker Wolf 190. They are a bit. They're giving them sort of improved engines and all the rest of it. It's a long-nosed Fokker Wolf that comes in and all the rest of it with a, with a much bigger engine. Um, and they are better, but they're not substantially so. They're not a radical new design. And what's happened is that although... Um, the German aircraft manufacturers and designers are designing new aircraft. They're taking too long to come to fruition. They're too much faffing about. The procurement process is too long-winded. And so, you know, there is a Messerschmitt 209. There is a Messerschmitt 309, which are sort of upgraded versions of the 109, and they're just total turkey, so they never go into production. So they're having to stick to the 109. So, you know, there are, you know, how many, 22 different variants of Spitfire in the Second World War. There are three different variants of the Messerschmitt 109 within the Second World War, the ZE and the F and the G. And, you know, it's not that much better, really, the G by the end of the Second World War. So they're kind of flatlining a bit. So these Messerschmitts are taking off in, in February and they're dealing with these vast armadas of aircraft coming across. Did the Germans have any... How did they respond to this? They, or were they just sending up interceptors when the raids came over, or were they, was there a sort of strategic or a more concerted response to this huge challenge that was posed by the West? Yeah, for the most time, they're just going up in their, their staff on, you know, their squadrons uh, and taking them on. And, of course, you know, they're outnumbered, they haven't got a hope, and they're getting shot down. I mean, this is an amazing example of this guy. This is an amazing diary. If you haven't ever read it, I really recommend everyone does, by Heinz Nocker. Heinz Nocker is a, is a fighter pilot of JG-11... Um, which is Jagdgeschwader, which is Fighter Group Group 11. And he's a, an incredibly tenacious and courageous fighter pilot. And he sort of joins the Luftwaffe back in 1939, 1940, with all, you know, such ideals, you know, sort of loves the Fuhrer, thinks it's all great, you know, Germany's brilliant and all the rest of it. And slowly but surely, this gets absolutely sort of squashed out of him. And he gets shot down like something like six or seven times. You know, he keeps bailing out and he's injured and he's shot up, but he gets back into his plane and he's flying again. And there was this one time during big week where he takes off and he's got a new wingman. He's literally arrived that morning with 90 hours on his logbook or whatever. And they take off and he goes, oh, yeah, this is good. You know, this guy's still on my wing. Fantastic. Good effort. Well done. Uh, and he comes in and he attacks some, some B-17 flying fortresses. Uh, and one pass, and, and then he sees this guy, and, he, and, the, and the guy he's with, this wingman, shoots down a B-17. He just thinks, oh, brilliant, you know, finally, got a new guy, he's actually half decent. Two minutes later, he's looking down, and the other guy's going down as well, following the, the B-17. So he's shot down this B-17, then being shot in turn, crashes and dies, and that's the end of him. And literally, that is his first combat sortie. And this is the kind of... This is the state of these Luftwaffe fighter squadrons at this stage. You know, anyone who comes in just hasn't got a chance because they, you know, you're up against guys who are seriously good. And even a, a, a B-17 is still vulnerable, but, you know, it's got 13.50 caliber machine guns. So there's a lot of lead flying around and you need really high skill and high combat skill to be able to survive in that environment. And these new Luftwaffe pilots that are coming in just don't have that. And, of course, even the really good guys, the guys like Heinz Nocker, they're getting shot down. And eventually, you know, they're not all like Heinz Nocker and sort of getting back in their cockpit every single time. You know, for most people, you know, when you get shot down once or twice, you know, that's it. And, and so even the aces are starting to kind of the numbers of really good skilled, you know, the expert. And the, these guys are kind of being chipped away at. And it's just that is the key bit about big week. That's the moment. That is so decisive. That's that's what really turns Allied fortunes. And the following months of March and April 1944 is when the slaughter takes place. And that's when the Luftwaffe then properly retreats into the Reich. And you know we've won our 
air superiority. And it's all been set up by bigwig and by the kind of changes that have been implemented at the very end of 1943 and the very beginning of 1944. It's a really fascinating period. And my God, you know, you wouldn't want to be involved in that period. I mean, you know, up in the air, that is tough. And being a bomber, an Allied bomber, that is horrific. Wow. I mean, goodness me. So can you give me a sense of the impact on Big Week, on uh, on Luftwaffe strength? Yeah, actually, Big Week itself, the numbers are, you know, in the hundreds of planes that were shot down, but German planes that were shot down. That's still a big old hit. But between, I think, something like January and February, end of February, the Luftwaffe loses 3,000 aircraft, of which half are down to kind of pilot error. And that is because they're just not well-trained enough and because they're flying in winter. I mean, they haven't had enough cold weather training and they haven't had enough night vision training and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, days are short and very soon it gets dark and suddenly they're having to land in the darkness and they prang their Messerschmitt and that's that. I mean, you know, Messerschmitts and particularly less so Fokker Wolves, which have a kind of wider undercarriage, but Messerschmitt 109s particularly are, are brutal for, for the uninitiated because they have this incredibly high wing loading, they have this incredible torque, you know, narrow undercarriage, et cetera, et cetera. So they're very, very easy to prang. Uh, and it's just those kind of losses are completely unsustainable. Yeah, I mean, although there were more aircraft on both sides than the Battle of Britain, that is an order of magnitude more than pilots lost during the Battle of Britain. Completely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the scale of this is just so huge. You know, there's how many planes are there now in, in the Luftwaffe by, you know, there's sort of a couple of thousand planes available within the right fighter planes within the right but you know the allies for d-day you know they've got like twelve and a half thousand planes flying on d-day i mean twelve and a half thousand i mean you know i mean you you sort of think about those people in you know in dover in 1940 and they sort of say you know i looked up and i saw the sky black with swastikas and all the rest of it you know it's like a couple of hundred um, and so this we the, the upshot of big week a was that the strategic bombing campaign could continue without appalling losses to well, without such high losses to the well, allies. Well, certainly more efficiently. But the main thing is that suddenly we had the skies clear. And so there was then this debate over kind of, you know, how would the strategic air forces help the, the invasion? I mean, one thing that was absolutely clear that was going to happen was going to be the, there was going to be a, a kind of interdiction policy, an interdiction strategy before D-Day. So what that means is sending in your tactical air forces, which are air forces which are there designed specifically to operate with the ground forces and in support of the ground forces, as opposed to your strategic air forces, which operate completely independently. So it is your strategic air forces which are doing the kind of heavy lifting in terms of bombing. It is the tactical air forces which are lower, faster, medium bombers, twin-engine bombers, you know, B-26s and B-25s and things like that and, and so on, who are going in and doing low-level, more accurate bombing of bridges, for example. So all the bridges across the Seine are bombed. Uh, and it is, of course, you know, fighter, ground attack aircraft, you know, typhoons, rocket firing typhoons and tempests and thunderbolts and all the rest of it are doing other, that kind of stuff as well. And what you want to do, and what is absolutely essential, is is to make sure that when D-Day comes, when normally the, the invasion happens, the Germans are, are massively handicapped in their ability to coordinate their counterattack with their mobile forces, which basically means tanks and, you know, armoured kit, you know, half-tracks and all the rest of it and assault guns. So you need to make that, that, that ability of the Germans to bring those armoured forces, those mobile armoured forces, up to the battlefront, to the bridgehead of Normandy, as difficult and as slow and painstaking and, and just awkward 
as they possibly can. And the way you do that is by destroying railways and destroying bridges and blowing up roads and being just, a, you know, making life really, really difficult. And that, to do that, because you're operating at lower levels, you have to have air superiority over that wide expanse of, air, uh, of territory because otherwise your, your bombers and your ground attack planes are going to get shot down, which is why that whole air superiority thing is, is so important. Where there was a bigger debate was where the strategic forces should support the uh, Operation Overlord, you know, the invasion. Should they be hitting oil targets or should they be hitting large marshalling yards of railway yards because, of course, the Germans were so dependent on the Reichsbahn, the German railway? Um, how, how should that pan out? And actually, although it kind of came down in favour of the transportation plan, i.e. hitting marshalling yards, they were still doing oil targets as well, which was entirely sensible. But that is why you need that air superiority over a large swathe of territory, and that was achieved. And what is amazing is you think during the height of the, you know, the whole of the Blitz of, of London between, you know, September and May, 19, September 1940 to May 1941, there were 18,000 tonnes of bombs dropped on London and made a big old mess uh, and something that's absolutely still part of our kind of heritage. On France alone, in the nine weeks leading up to D-Day, the Allies dropped 197,000 tonnes of bombs. Incredible. Well, luckily, I know you're, you have a D-Day project up your sleeve. I do. So we're going to get you back on the podcast. We're going to do lots of historyhit.tv, lots of podcasting next year talking about that. I should say, if it sounds like we're in a strange little car, we are. We're just two middle-aged dudes growing at the temple, sitting outside a pub, talking about Second World War Aviation. Tell me about this car that we're in. Oh, I love this car. I've had this car about a dozen years now, Dan. It's, um, it's a Citroën. Uh, it's a Traction Avant, um, as they're known, or, or an 11B, to give it its, its right name. Um, and a very exciting thing has happened, because when I first bought this a dozen years ago, it had... 4,313 kilometres on the clock. And I've just gone back to naught. So it's done 99,999 plus the 107 I've done since uh, since it went back to naught. And that's a lot. You haven't got any back seats at the moment because they're being reupholstered after a very, you know, long overdue. But this, I tell you what, this car does me proud. I mean, I have done some serious miles in this. And what does it cost new? I bought it for five grand. I think it's worth double that now. Well, now that the now you sort the mileage out, it needs a backseat. Obviously, there's a cricket bat in the back, yep. a tweed jacket, and a, and a cricket sweater. I love you, James Holm. That's classic. <laughs> it's a great car. Right. Thank you very much. What's the book called? Uh, it's called Big Week, Biggest Air Battle of World War II, February 1944. Go and get it, everybody. Thanks very much. Cheers, Dan. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.